Now take a few more minutes to make sure your mind is really settled down in the here and now, the present. Put aside other thoughts, other activities, problems, worries, and so on, so that you can be as focused and concentrated as possible during this class. Now for the meditation. We're looking at the Prasangika school, which says that all phenomena are empty of inherent existence, and that includes our own self, our body, our mind, and everything else. So let's do a little bit of investigation into that idea with regard to our own self, our I. So, according to Prasangika, our self, or I, is merely imputed in dependence on the aggregates of body and mind. But, beginning with time, within our mind, we had this conception of our self, or I, being not merely imputed, but existing inherently, independently, from its own side, objectively. So this is like a really deep, innate, instinctive conception that we have. So start by seeing if you can get in touch with that sense of self or I, a feeling of an I that's existing on its own, all by itself, not depending on anyone or anything else. Totally autonomous, objective. The best time to get a sense of that is, is when we have some emotion coming up. Like if someone speaks to us in a way we don't like or accuses us of something that we didn't do, or some kind of unpleasant experience happens with another person. So at those times, there's usually a strong sense of an I coming up. I didn't do that. You shouldn't talk to me like that. You shouldn't treat me like that. Don't you know who I am? So see if you can recall an experience like that, where you had a strong reaction to another person's words or behavior and a strong sense of I lying beneath that emotion.
focus on that very sense of I, put aside whatever emotion was being felt, and just try to focus on that sense of an I. Try to recognize how it seems so real, so concrete, existing on its own objectively. So try to hold on to that awareness, that sense of an I, as we analyze to see if it really can exist the way it appears or not. So if this I does exist the way it appears, inherently, independently, there are just two possibilities for how it exists in relation to our aggregates our body and mind. So one possibility is that it's one with the body and mind, one with our aggregates. And the other possibility is that it's separate, different from our aggregates. So let's investigate each of these in turn. So the first possibility is the I, inherently existing I, being one with the aggregates. And if we're talking about an inherently existing I, then it has to be completely one, absolutely one, one in every way with the aggregates, without any difference at all. And so, if that was the case, then since there are five aggregates, there should be five eyes. Because they have to match, they have to be completely one and the same. So, five aggregates, there'd have to be five eyes. And that means we would have five identities, we'd have to have five passports. When we travel, we'd have to buy five seats on a plane. So it's easy to see that that isn't the case. We're just one person. We have one name, one identity, one passport. We just buy one seat for ourselves when we travel. But then, since we have just one, we're just one person, not five, then there should be only one aggregate, not five aggregates. There should be just one whole indivisible aggregate corresponding to our one inherently existing I. So it's clear that that isn't the case. Our aggregates are made up of many, many parts. Each, each of the aggregate, in fact, has different parts. There's actually multiple parts making up our aggregates.
Now try to recognize that the I, our I, cannot be inherently one with the aggregates. And the other possibility is this inherently existing I being different from the aggregates. And again, since it's something inherently existing, or it seems to be inherently existing, and if it's different from the aggregates, then it has to be absolutely different. And, and there's no uh, connection, no relation, no dependence at all between the I and the aggregates. And so, in that case, then it should be possible to separate the I and the aggregates, the body and mind. Um, so we could have our aggregates, our body and mind, in one location, and our I could be in another location, doing something else, because they're totally separate, independent. I think it's easy to recognize that that is not the case. Our I is always wherever our aggregates are. We can't leave our aggregates in one place and then our I goes somewhere else and does something else. Other consequences of the I and the aggregates being completely different would be um, our aggregates, like our body, could be sick, but our I wouldn't be sick. You couldn't say, I am sick, if there's sickness in our body. And likewise, our mind could be depressed, unhappy, but our I wouldn't be depressed and unhappy. Our I could be very happy, joyful, because they're completely separate, completely different, without any connection at all. So, hopefully you can recognize that the I cannot be completely separate, different from the aggregates. So see if you can recognize that neither of these two possibilities is valid. In other words, the self or the I that appears to be inherently existing isn't inherently one with the aggregates, nor inherently different, separate from the aggregates. And there's no other possibility, no other way in which it could exist in relation to the aggregates. So see if you can conclude that the I cannot exist inherently. There, there can be no such thing as an inherently, independently, objectively existing self or I.
Try to get a sense of the emptiness, the absence of that kind of I. When we do a meditation like that, we might get a sense, not always, but sometimes we might get a sense of the emptiness, the absence of that strong, inherently existing I. But then, sooner or later, we encounter some situation <laughs> where again, our buttons get pushed, our emotions get triggered, and the sense of I comes up again. But that's good, because then if we can be mindful, if we can... Uh, remember to do it, we can use that situation to look for that sense of I and again do that kind of investigation. What is this I? Where is this I? How does it exist? But generally, it's not easy, not easy to do this kind of reflection. So if you find it difficult, don't worry. (laughs) It's normal. So, um, okay, so we're on the Prasangika school, and last time we were looking at their explain, their, what they say about mind, and it's kind of complicated. <laughs> um, so I thought to make just a summary of some of the main, um, main points, the main assertions that Prasangika makes about the mind, especially you know, things they say that are different from what the other schools say. But, yeah, this is, there's a lot of things that Prasangika says about the mind that aren't shared by the others. So these are just some of the main things. Um, The first one here, the first bullet point, I think it was on one of the slides we had before, but I I think I skipped over it. I um, didn't talk about it, so I'll go back to it. Um, it says a consciousness always realizes its object of comprehension. So that term, object of comprehension, is a little puzzling um, because I was, you know, looking for meanings, what it means, and it seems to have different meanings in different contexts. But here, in the context of prasangika. I found in um, one of the commentaries from Nalanda Monastery uh, by Geshe Gelsen there. Um, He said that the object of comprehension here is the object that appears to the mind. It's whatever um, appears to the mind. And and in that commentary, Geshe Gelsen said that this is a unique assertion of prasangika because um, the other schools say that this isn't the case. Not every consciousness realizes its object of comprehension. For example, in the case of a wrong consciousness, what would be an example of a wrong consciousness? Like maybe a wrong sense perception? Huh? Seeing one moon is two. Seeing one moon is two. Yeah, I never quite understood 
understood that, but they say if you press your eyeballs. <laughs> so that's one example, or seeing rabbit ears as rabbit horns, or seeing a mirage as water, or a reflection in the mirror as a real whatever. So there's, those are some examples of a wrong consciousness. So the other schools would say that in, in the case of a wrong consciousness, um, that consciousness doesn't realize its object of comprehension, the object that appears to it. It's, it's mistaken. It's mistaken about the object that appears to it. But um, Prasangika say that even wrong consciousnesses realize their object of comprehension. And so some examples given in the text, um, that, uh, the conception, one of the examples is the conception of sound as permanent. So there are like, Indians, Hindus uh, in some religion, um, who believe that the sound of the Vedas is permanent. These ancient scriptures, the Vedas, so they say that sound is permanent. And so they have this conception, believing that sound is permanent. And that's a wrong conception, because sound is not permanent. It's never permanent. It's always impermanent. So that's a wrong consciousness. But according to Prasangika, it does realize what appears to it. And what appears to it is a mental image, or a, what's the other term for that? Um, conceptual appearance, yeah, conceptual appearance of permanent sound. So that's what is actually appearing to that mind, and that mind does realize that. It sounds strange. <laughs> but And the other example that they give is a conception of rabbit horns. So if somebody sees a rabbit with the ears sticking up and thinks, oh, there's horns. Um, so that's also a wrong consciousness, um, but that mind does realize this appearance, this conceptual appearance of rabbit horns, even though they don't actually exist. Is this the, huh? Um, is this the lokshe? No, the two shape? It's lokshe. These are lokshes. Yeah. Lokshe. Yeah. Those. Yeah. The object of comprehension. Well, the term object of comprehension uh, it seems to be a very general term. It's whatever appears to the mind. So there's always something appearing to the mind. In some cases, it could be correct, you know, like seeing a rabbit and thinking, oh, that rabbit has nice ears. So it's not a wrong consciousness. But there's still something appearing to the mind. There's always something appearing. There's always an appearing object. So um, the other schools would say that wrong, in a wrong consciousness, a lokshe, um, there's a mistake. There's, um, you know, there's one thing that's appearing, but the mind misunderstands it. Like rabbit ears appear, but the mind sees rabbit horns instead. Or there's a mirage that appears, there's no water there, but the mind sees water. So, so there, but there's still something appearing, yeah, even if the mind is mistaken about it. And um, the prasang- prasangikas say that um, 
the mind still realizes what is appearing. And not only that, they, they go even further. <laughs> they even say that um, every mind is valid to its appearing object. Let me just check here. Yeah, so I found in the book Cutting Through Appearances, um, on this particular point, it says, dualistic consciousnesses are necessarily direct, valid cognitions with respect to their own appearing object. So, what, what would, so dualistic consciousness, I think, my understanding is dualistic consciousness is any consciousness except the direct realization of emptiness. That's the direct realization of emptiness, and Arya's direct realization of emptiness is the only non-dualistic consciousness that there is, because there's no appearance of any duality, like subject-object duality, or the appearance of true existence, or the appearance of conventionalities. So only that mind is, is non-dualistic, and every other mind is a dualistic mind, especially in terms of seeing things as truly existing, when in fact they are not. Does that make sense, dualistic consciousnesses? So that's a pretty remarkable thing to say, that all dualistic consciousnesses, which includes, you know, all wrong consciousnesses <laughs> are necessarily direct, valid cognitions with respect to their own appearing object. Um, and, and, and this even includes the conception of true existence. Yeah? Conception of true existence. Um, so that's like ignorance believing in, grasping at uh, true existence, inherent existence. So true existence is always appearing to our mind. Everything we see, everything we experience appears truly existing. But not every single one of our minds is actually a grasping at uh, true existence, a conception of true existence. Do you understand what I'm saying? So like, you know, we, we could see this looking at this bowl, um, it appears truly existing. It appears like an inherently existing bowl to our eye consciousness and also to our thought consciousness. If we think about it, you know, it seems to be truly existing. But not all of those minds are actually grasping, conceiving it to be truly existing. Um, if we get emotional, like if we get attached to an object or we get angry at an object, in those moments, definitely, our mind is grasping. It's like actively grasping at, actively conceiving in uh, true existence. But when we're just kind of calm and in a neutral state of mind, not really afflicted, grasp, you know, and, and so on towards an object, um, then you know, we're not necessarily grasping. It's not necessarily the conception of true existence. But things still appear truly existing. So, I don't know if you may understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Let's say, 
you know, somebody um, irritates you. Okay, there's a person who irritates you, who does something that stirs up your anger, and you're feeling angry, irritated at that person. So in that moment, you know, there there's definitely grasping at that person as being truly existing. And there's this truly existing, irritating person there. So that's an example of a conception of true existence. And even that mind, even that mind that's actively grasping at, conceiving true existence, even that mind, <laughs> according to this explanation, according to the Prasangikas, is a direct valid cognition regarding its appearing object. Um, so the appearing, appearing object for that mind, what would be the appearing object for that particular mind of being angry, being irritated at this person, let's say somebody named John. Inherently existing, irritating John. Yeah, inherently existing, irritating John. And 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 this is a conceptual mind, so there, so there's a conceptual image, a mental image. Okay, so that mental image does exist, even though we're you know relating to John incorrectly, but there's still a mental image appearing to that mind. And it's not true, you know, John doesn't really exist that way, but still there is something appearing to that mind. And so, um, Prasangika says that the mind is, well, like here it says it realizes its object of comprehension, and not only that, it's a valid cognition <laughs> with regard to that appearance. Um, this is... Uh, Yeah, it the mind is only is the mind is valid only to that object. That doesn't mean that the mind is a valid cognition. Um, so like a schizophrenic and you're hearing voices and that voice is real to you. Yes. They really do hear. Yeah. And it's valid for you. It yeah, yeah. So the mind is valid to what appears to it. It does um, you know, have that experience. Let me let me give you another example. This is from Geshe Gelson's um, commentary. Um, because these other examples were of conceptions, conceptions, and I was wondering about the you know like sense perceptions. Um, so he gives the example of seeing an illusory horse. You know that example of the magician turning a stick into a horse and people see a horse and they really believe it's a horse. Um, so he says, the appearance, the appearance of the horse does exist even though it is an illusion. It's not a real horse, but still there is an appearance of a horse. And later, like the next day, the people can remember that they saw that horse. Yeah? And um, so Geshe Gelson says that memory is based on a prior realization. We remember something now that we realized yesterday. Now realize, don't think, you know, the word realize here means like, you know, some kind of high realization. Realize simply just means, uh, I can't remember how to describe it, just grasping it or knowing it or experiencing it. 
So he says, the illusory horse is not true, and we perceived it with a wrong consciousness. But the wrong consciousness realized the appearance of the illusory horse. Realize the appearance of the illusory horse. So it seems to be saying that, you know, if we have a memory of having seen or heard or, you know, perceived something, even if we were wrong about it, like, you know, we sometimes see a dummy, a mannequin, or, you know, just some other kind of object, and it's dark, we can't see it very clearly, and we may think it's a person, a real person there, and then later realize it wasn't. But still, we can remember later that we had that perception. We, we did have that experience of seeing that object, even if we saw it incorrectly. And the fact that we remember it afterwards uh, means that our mind did realize that appearance. We realized what appeared to it. Does that make sense? It's weird. Huh? It seems like they wanted to make Yeah, I mean, I don't know where, why this comes about, <laughs> but I, I have encountered it before, like in studying Madhyamaka Avatar, it comes up there. Um, so it is an assertion that the Prasangikas have, and it is odd, I have to admit. I don't, you know, fully understand why. There must be a reason for it. <laughs> But yeah, I do remember them saying that even the conception of true existence, the conception of inherent existence, there is an appearance to that mind. And, you know, the object, like an, a truly existing object is appearing, and the mind does realize that object is valid to that object. Now, why they say that, I don't know. But... This is one of their assertions. I was wondering when, like, Venerable's teaching uh, Shanti Deva on Thursday morning, and she's on chapter eight. Is she fought very far along on chapter eight? There's... Huh? No, oh, she's got a long way to go. Because what I I heard that um, when that finishes, she instead of teaching chapter nine, she's going to teach. Inside into emptiness, is that right? <laughs> well, I thought that would be really helpful. That, I mean, that book um, really goes into the Prasangika view and uh, many other aspects as well compared with other schools. So I thought that would be, yeah, because in this class we're just looking at a few of the assertions of Prasangika. Um, not going into every bit of it, every detail of it. And so I thought it would be good to go through that book. I'm sure it'll happen one day. This is a very helpful book. And then we're also going through um, Illumination of the Thought with Geshe Shilundrup, although quite slowly. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, this does come up in in that text, in Chandrakirti's guide, um, entering the middle way, and then Lama Tsongkhapa's commentary to that. So don't worry about this if you don't understand it. It's there in the text, and 
and it'll you'll probably encounter it again and slowly slowly it'll make more sense but anyway this is one of their unique insertions the other points I think we did go through already. This is just a review of them. So the second um, bullet point says a valid cognizer doesn't have to be new, only incontrovertible. So that's, again, different from the other schools who say that a valid cognizer is only the first moment, the new, fresh moment of uh, knowing an object, experiencing an object. But Prasangika says, no, that's not necessary, as long as it's incontrovertible. Um, knows its object correctly, is able to lead to certainty about it, and eliminate superimpositions, and so on. And the third um, bullet point is, since direct perceivers can be mistaken, but still valid. So why... Well, uh, you might remember, uh, according to Prasangika, for sentient beings, that includes us, but it also includes everybody except a Buddha. <laughs> so all the way up to the highest bodhisattvas and arhats and so on, all of us are sentient beings. And all of us are sense-direct perceivers. Every sense-direct perceiver that we have is mistaken. Why? Yeah, things appear inherently existing even though they're not. So there's this mistaken element in all of our sense-direct perceivers, but they can still be valid. Um, now, as long as we're seeing the object correctly, we're seeing rabbit ears rather than rabbit horns, we're seeing a mirage as a mirage and not as water. So as long as we're seeing things correctly, then those minds are valid, even though there's this mistaken element because things appear inherently existing, although they are not. Um, and then the next one, valid direct perceivers can be conceptual or non-conceptual. So we went through that last time. This is kind of unusual compared to the other schools. Um, can someone give me an example of a, a valid direct perceiver that is conceptual? Remember one of those? The second moment of a memory, yes, yes, that's one example. Um, well, if it's a memory of, of, of that, that it was induced by a, a, a sense perception, like seeing an object and then later remembering what you saw, then even the first moment of that is actually a conceptual valid direct perceiver, yeah. So all those memories, as long as they're correct, they, they still have to be correct. So uh, if we are misremembering, yeah, remembering something in, incorrectly, then that wouldn't be a direct perceiver. It wouldn't be a valid direct perceiver. But if we're remembering that object correctly as it existed, as we saw it, then that would be uh, conceptual. Any other example of a conceptual valid direct perceiver? 
Yeah. So the first moment of an inferential realization of emptiness or impermanence or whatever, the first moment would be uh, an inference, not a valid direct perceiver. The second moment, third moment, and so on, in that series of experiences would be um, conceptual valid direct perceivers. And why is it a valid direct perceiver? Why is it a direct perceiver rather than an inference? No. It doesn't rely on a sign, right? So for the prasangika, um, it, yeah, a, a, the meaning of a of a direct perceiver is if a mind is able to know its object without relying on a sign or a reason. And so, in an inference, the first moment needs a sign or a reason to know its object. The second moment and third moment no longer need a sign or a reason. They're just kind of pulled along, induced by the first moment. So, so because they don't rely on a sign, directly anyway, then they are direct um, perceivers. <laughs> so again, that's different from the other schools. The other schools would say that there's no such thing as a conceptual <laughs> direct perceiver. That's like a oxymoron. Direct perceivers are always non-conceptual, but prasangika are different than them. And then non-conceptual, there's plenty of examples of non-conceptual valid direct perceivers, like seeing a table, yeah. How many what? Well, like, I mean, oh, I think they assert all seven. I think they would agree with all seven of the seven types of awareness, as far as I know. Yeah, so they would still have all seven, but the way they explain them, define them, at least in some cases, would be different. That's as far as I know. I haven't heard otherwise. Because again, Lorik, usually Lorik is taught according to Sotrantika, Sotrantika. And um, somebody mentioned, as it Ramudamsha said, that somebody has written a text on Lorik from Prasangika point of view, but it's only in Tibetan. So maybe one day we'll have a translation of that. But most, yeah, most Lorik texts are according to Sotrantika. But, yeah, you kind of learn these prasangika views on the, the Lorig in different, different places, like in here or in Madhyamaka Vatara. But usually you don't have a whole text just about Lorig according to prasangika. And the last one we looked at last week as well, subsequent cognizers are always valid cognizers according to prasangika, which... The other schools would say, no, they're never valid cognizers. Why? Why are they not valid cognizers? They're not new. So the other schools say valid cognizers have to be new, fresh, first moment. The subsequent cognizers don't qualify. But Prasangika lets them in. 
Yes, you guys can be ballot coordinators too. Okay, any questions about that? <laughs> Did I Yeah, yeah. So are, like us, sentient beings um, who don't have a realization of emptiness. So the first moment that we see an object like a, a red flower, um, the first moment is um, a valid direct perceiver. And the second moment, they would still call it a subsequent cognizer. They still say it's a subsequent cognizer, second moment, third moment, and so on. But they're still valid. They're still valid. And they're valid even though thing, you know, the rose, the, the flower appears truly existing, inherently existing. So there's that mistaken element. But as long as we see it as a flower and not as an elephant or something, we see it as the, you know, the right color, <laughs> not as the wrong color. So as long as we're seeing it correctly, it's still a valid cognizer, and uh, it's there's just this mistaken element that it appears inherently existing, even though it's not. That answer your question? Yeah. Complex. And this includes like the pervasion and the different possibilities. I mean, it's last week, so. gone through. So this idea that the consciousness always realizes its object of comprehension, that would be like all all cognitions. We would say they're all realized. And then a subset of them are valid, mm -hmm. but it's a much bigger subset than the other school would say. Is that kind of an okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Prasangika would um, yeah, the number of valid cognizers that we have would be greater than the other schools because all subsequent cognizers are valid. So the other schools have a much more limited, narrow view of valid cognizers. Only the first moment of a series of moments of perceiving an object or inferentially understanding an object, only that first moment is valid and the rest are not. Whereas Prasangika says all those moments in that train, that series, would be valid. In that way, what does that imply about how if Prasangika said that we have many more valid cognizers, we are suddenly convincing reality more than over. Are we what? The implication of accepting many more valid cognizers than the other schools. Yeah, in a way, I mean, because, you know, they also say all of our consciousnesses are mistaken. Mm -hmm. They're mistaken, even though they're valid in one way, but they're also mistaken in another way. So, you know, <laughs> like seeing inherent existence. 
the other schools, even Svatantrika, Svatantrika Madhyamaka, they they agree that yeah, we see things as inherently existing, but that's fine. Things are inherently existing, <laughs> and the other schools would say the same. That's there's nothing wrong with seeing things as inherently existing because they are inherently existing, <laughs> and so they don't see that as a mistake. They see nothing wrong with that. Whereas the prasangikas say, you see things as inherently existing, that is wrong. That is, well, not wrong in the sense of that becoming a, a wrong consciousness, but they see a lot more mistakes. They recognize more mistakes in our perceptions, our cognitions of things than the other schools do. This is such a complicated... <laughs> Just the mind and different ways the mind perceives things and how the different schools explain, you know, the the ways of seeing that are mistaken, the ways of seeing that are correct. It's it's very, very complicated. But it's also very interesting. Well, it... I did find it in the book of this book called Mind in Tibetan Buddhism um, by, well, it's Elizabeth Knapper who um, edited it, but there's teachings from mainly Lati Rinpoche. And um, so that book is um, according to Sotrantika um, mainly. And I did find it in that book. They did use the term object of comprehension. And in that book, it, it, it said it, it's synonymous with engaged object, the main object of the mind. Now, so if we're looking at a flower, the object of comprehension would be the flower. So whatever is the main object that the mind is engaged with, object of comprehension is another term for that. That's how it's explained in that book. But... In this context here, the way the Prasangika uses it, it seems different because um, it can include, like the appearing object, the um, the mental image uh, of a mind, like that example of uh, conception of sound being permanent, even though the mind is wrong about sound and how it exists, but there's still an appearance. There's, there's a mental image, a conceptual appearance of permanent sound to that mind, and that would be its object of comprehension. So whatever is appearing, even if it's appearing in an, in an erroneous way, or the example of the illusory horse, there's no such thing as that illusory horse, and yet it's still appearing to those people because of the magic of the magician. So there's still an appearance there, even though you know, it's something false. So it seems that in this context, the, object, the term object of comprehension is used in a much broader way. It can even include you know, false objects, false appearances. According to the person, the Buddha has subsequent cognizers. Does the Buddha have subsequent cognizers? Well, they yeah they say every moment of a Buddha's mind is valid, um, 
I mean, this is even the other schools, I think, would say that um, because every moment of a Buddha's mind engages its object through its own power. It isn't, doesn't need to be induced by an earlier moment, but it's engaging by its own power. It's like an engine. Every moment of Buddha's mind is like the train engine. So they're always valid, but whether you would still say, maybe you wouldn't say it's a subsequent cognizer, no, maybe not. I'm just guessing, I'm not sure, but yeah. Every moment of Buddha's mind? Yeah, every moment of Buddha's mind is non-conceptual. Buddha has no conceptions. It's always non-conceptual, always valid. And what was the other thing you said? A direct and a direct perceiver. Yeah, non-conceptual, direct perceiver, valid direct perceiver. <laughs> yeah, every moment of Buddha's mind. That's what they say. Buddha doesn't need to think plan, organize, just acting spontaneously. Uh, I don't know about all tenant systems, what they would say, like Satantika, I don't know. Can't remember. Okay, so let's see if we can do a little bit more. Now we move on to selflessness. So this is point number six, selflessness. And um, so, as the other schools, they have selflessness of persons and selflessness of phenomena. So the selflessness of persons, two levels, coarse and subtle. Coarse is the emptiness of being self-supporting, substantially existent. So that's seen that before with the other schools, although most of the other schools would say that is subtle selflessness of persons. Um, But here it's coarse. And then the subtle selflessness of persons is a person's emptiness of true existence or inherent existence, objective existence, and so on. So emptiness of inherent existence with respect to a person, oneself, other persons, animals, people, Buddhas, any kind of person, the emptiness of true existence or inherent existence. So now with with selflessness of phenomena, there's something really strange. (laughs) I, I mentioned before that there was no coarse selflessness of phenomena um, in Jeffrey's book, Meditation on Emptiness, where he has charts of all the different schools and their assertions about selflessness, there's no selflessness of persons. I'm oh, sorry, no coarse selflessness of phenomena. And also cutting through appearances. I looked at a number of other books, and none of them mentioned a coarse selflessness of phenomena. But the, um, Jetson Chucky Gelson's text mentions this selflessness of phenomena. And so what he says is, it's the emptiness of one, a coarse object made of partless particles, and two, the valid cognizer apprehending it, 
being of different substances. And so I looked at a number of the commentaries uh, by different teachers like Kensa Jama Tekchuk and so on. And um, so the first thing, a coarse object made of partless particles. According to Prasangika, there's no such thing because they don't accept partless particles. <laughs> there's no such thing as a partless particle. And so since there's no partless particle, there cannot be a coarse, a gross object made up of partless particles. So that's a non-existent. And then number two, a valid cognizer apprehending such a thing. Is that possible? So number one doesn't exist. Number two doesn't exist. And yet it's saying, so these two things being of different, are empty of being different substances. They are not different substances. So this is kind of similar to what the Chidamatras say, where they say that like, uh, you know, a table and the eye consciousness perceiving the table are empty of being different substances. That's what Chidamatra would say. But, you know, here, a non-existent object and a non-existent subject being empty of different substances. So the various commentaries I saw, some of the teachers were saying, this is quite strange, or one of them said, this needs to be investigated. <laughs> and yeah, so I don't know what to make of this. Um, I think we can just ignore it, not worry about it. <laughs> None of the other texts, like uh, Cutting Through Appearances, that's also a text on tenets by a different uh, uh, author, Kunchuk Jigme Wonko, I think. He doesn't mention this at all. Um, Jeffrey Hopkins' books on, you know, different kinds of self don't mention this at all. So, I don't know why it appears in Jetson Shoki Gelfin's text, but yeah, I think we can just <laughs> put it on the shelf. <laughs> yeah. So then the main type of selflessness is the subtle one, uh, and that's the emptiness of true existence of, well, here it says aggregates. Aggregates, the aggregates are the main phenomena that one is a meditator's concern with because um, one's aggregates, the body and the mind, are the basis of imputation of a person. So um, our self, our I, is imputed on our aggregates. And since, you know, conceiving of a self, an I, as something inherently existing, is the root of all our problems, the cause of all our troubles. And so the sense of I is intimately connected with our aggregates. And so not only do we need to realize the I as empty of inherent existence, true existence, we also need to realize our aggregates, the basis of imputation, our body and mind. We need to realize they are also empty of true existence, inherent existence. So the aggregate, mentioning the aggregates here is an example. It's the main example of phenomena, but then, you know, 
everything else, tables and chairs and mountains and cars and so on. These are also phenomena, but they're less important than our aggregates. So, um, so then the text goes on to um, look at differences between the two um, subtle types of selflessness and also the two um, types of self-grasping. So, um, so the two subtle selflessnesses would be the selflessness of, of uh, persons and selflessness of phenomena. So again, what is the selflessness of persons, the subtle selflessness of persons? How is that explained? Emptiness of inherent existence of a person. Sorry? Um, it's what's used in the text, um, uh, Jetson Choki Gelson's text. They, they, I mean, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to use true existence. Both Svatandraga and Prasangika refute true existence. But when it comes to explaining what is true existence, there is a difference. So it's fine to use true existence, and they do in many texts, they do use the term true existence. But you just have to keep in mind that what Prasangika means by true existence and what Svatantrika mean by true existence are different. So the text actually uses that term. Yeah, so I'm just following what the text says. Okay, so the two subtle selflessnesses then, subtle selflessness of person, subtle selflessness of phenomena. So what's the difference between them? Um, The difference is in um, not the object of negation, not the thing that's being negated in between the two. That's the same. It's true existence or inherent existence, if you like. Um, But the difference is the basis of emptiness. What is the basis on which you are uh, investigating and realizing emptiness. So in one case it's a person, persons, and in another case it's other kinds of phenomena like the aggregates, tables, chairs, cars, and so on. So um, when we went through Svatantrika, um, we looked at how they differentiate the two subtle selflessnesses. And I put the chart up again. It's on on the next slide so we can compare how the difference between those two schools and how they explain the subtle selflessnesses. And then the grasping, the next point is the subtle um, self-grasping. So self-grasping is one way of translating the term dadzin, Others translated as conception of true existence or conception of self. Um, so the term self-grasping refers to a mind, a conception that is grasping at a self. And the term self in this case means a wrong mode of existence, like true existence or inherent existence. So the term self is tricky. Sometimes the term self does refer to like I, person, I, me. But in other cases, the term self refers to a wrong mode of existence. 
such as inherent existence, true existence, or self-sufficient, substantial existence, so some kind of wrong way of viewing um, an object. So the two subtle self-graspings would be self-grasping at persons, grasping truly existent person, and self-grasping phenomena, grasping um, true existent phenomena. So what's the difference in the mode of grasping or the manner of grasping? Um, so the mode of grasping is, this, is the same. Both self-grasping of persons and self-grasping of phenomena, they both grasp or conceive in the same way they conceive of true existence. Um, but the difference between them is the object, the type of object they are, uh, here it says observed object, meaning what is it that is being grasped as truly existent, either a person or an aggregate. Does that make sense? So on the next slide, I've got this chart. We looked at this before when we went through Svetantrika. I simplified it. I took out the course levels and just focused on the subtle. But they they do emphasize that you know there's a big difference between Svetantrika and Prasangika in 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 this way. Um, so if you look at Svetantrika. And the subtle selflessness of persons is the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So that's the object of negation, is that type of person, self-supporting, substantially existent person. And then when it comes to phenomena, the subtle selflessness of phenomena is the emptiness of true existence. So it's a different object of negation. and But it, it includes uh, both persons and phenomena other than persons, like aggregates and cars and so on. So that, so for Svetantrika, the difference between the two subtle selflessnesses is the object being negated, what is being negated. But over on the Prasangika side, the two, the two subtle selflessnesses, it's the same object that's being negated, inherently existent or true existence. So in the case of persons, it's the emptiness of an inherently existent person. So what's being negated is inherent existence or true existence with regard to persons. And for the subtle selflessness of phenomena, again, it's inherent existence or true existence. That's what's being negated with respect to phenomena. It's a little complicated, but they, you'll, you'll encounter this again. <laughs> Because they, they do point out that this is a significant uh, difference between these two types of Madhyamaka schools, Svatantrika and Prasangika. Why is it persons included in Svatantrika subtle selfishness of phenomena? Um, because what's being negated there is true existence. The object of negation is true existence. And that uh, that mode of existence, true existence, is negated on all phenomena, persons as well as other types of phenomena. So all phenomena 
including persons, are lumped together in phenomena, subtle selfishness of phenomena. Mm. Yeah, another difference too, we don't have time for this today, but um, when it comes to what you have to realize in order to get out of samsara, yeah, what needs to be realized to be free of samsara? According to Svatantrika, you only have to realize the subtle selflessness of persons. So they say that um, grasping at a self-supporting, substantially existent person, that's the root of samsara. That's the thing that keeps us in samsara. So if somebody wants to get out of samsara, all they have to realize is that. They don't have to realize the um, emptiness of true existence to get out of samsara. So that's another big difference. Whereas prasangika, no. (laughs) You have to realize um, emptiness of inherent existence of all things, persons and uh, phenomena. You have to realize emptiness to get out of samsara. So this will come later. The the last point in the, um, uh, the school is about um, grounds and paths, so how one actually progresses on the grounds. I thought we might be able to finish today, but no. Me, personally? <laughs> or one? <laughs> one <laughs> can one tell? I don't have any realization of emptiness, sorry. <laughs> Yeah. So you were asking for or, me. Or the, do the teachings talk about this? Like when the meditators meditate, um, what, how do they track which emptiness they are seeing? Oh, well, that's actually a good point. Um, because what I've heard is that. You know, when you know, like the first thing you have to do is uh, identify the object of refutation. And what can happen sometimes is that you can get a sense of this I, a strong sense of an I, and you might think that you've identified the inherently existing I, the truly existing I. But in fact, it may be the self-supporting, substantially existent I, which is a more coarse, more gross kind of I. But there, it seems like it's very, very, it's very hard to differentiate them. And so it's probably quite likely that your initial, you know, experience of a, of an I, the object of negation, isn't the most subtle one, isn't the truly existent I, but it's probably the self-sufficient, substantially existent I. But that's okay, because, I mean, what I've heard from my teachers is you actually cannot realize the emptiness of the inherently existing I before realizing the emptiness of the self-sufficient, substantially existent I. So it seems like you do have to first kind of clear that one away before you can realize the subtler one. Now, there may be different opinions about that. Some may say, no, 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 you can go straight to the realization of 
uh, emptiness of inherently existing I without having to go through the other one. But I, I maybe in some cases, maybe for some special people. <laughs> but, yeah, but I think some people do have to first realize the coarser one and then the subtler one. That's my very limited understanding. Okay, so thank you, and we will dedicate the merit. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forevermore.